now, your host. This is Bruce. This is John. And this is Blix. Welcome to the Tri-Tac Games Podcast. This week, Slargs, Kegax, and Supertech. Oh my. Fringeworthy. Fringeworthy is a game that has multiple and ample opportunities to include super technology. Some of it is so advanced that it doesn't even look like technology. It looks like, well, it looks like a living being or it, it's completely invisible because it's so integrated into it. Other cases, it's quite a bit more obvious, such as robotics and some of the materials that you might run into. And of course, as the saying goes, you know super tech when you see it, meaning that some things just can't be hidden. They're just really, really out there. So we're going to talk about what that means as far as Fringeworthy is concerned, and especially, of course, you know how to include it. But the, before we start that, I just want to say a, a, a few words, and that is that this is one of the great opportunities for GMs to really wow their players. A lot of times you go to these worlds where they're in the middle of the 14th century, 6th century. You're in the past. Technology is low. I mean, you're, you're basically on a primitive camping trip. And you're bringing all that what would be considered super technology from the standpoint of the natives. That's not what we're talking about. This is where you as a person, from the standard of a person that I did in the near future, you're seeing something that is absolutely stunning. Or something that surprises you because it is so advanced. This is your opportunity as a GM to wow your players and to really raise their vision as to what could be found out there in the campaign. It's a, an opportunity for you to turn things, to make big changes to your campaign, which of course is why you have to be careful. Because some things, if they are reproducible uh, or easily found or found in great quantities, can radically change your campaign. But that aside... You know, we want to encourage people to include this in their game. Don't neglect this because this is a science fiction game. And we all know that science fiction includes some big wow factors. So please find ways of making your game awesome. And super tech is one of the ways to make it do that. And it's relatively easy to find things and add them in because a lot of worlds out there are in ruins. And therefore, there might be quite a bit of super tech sitting around, unreproducible, but there for you to bring in to your game, give it to your players, find ways for IDET to let them have it, and you know really step up the, the kind of experience that the players have in playing the game. Give them toys. Give them fun stuff. We talked about this earlier uh, in the podcast about how you really want to wow your players, and that's what we're talking about here. Uh, John, when you think of super tech, what do you think of? Uh, my definition of super technology is technology... To such to the level that does all the mundane tasks I need done, so I actually have time to do what I want to do, however I want to do it. Super tech for me would be a house that keeps itself clean, so I can sit there and do my writing wherever I want to do it. That's one form of super tech. Now, of course, if you love to cook like I do, uh, an automated food machine would be the last thing I'd want. I actually would want to have a wood fire stove and all that kind of stuff so I can make great food. There's a big spread between the lower end of super tech what you were kind of talking about, and Supertech is so advanced that it might as well be magic. And I think what you were originally talking about was the lower end of it. Oh, yeah. And the low end can be fairly high, too. The uh, Tremelin 
house trees. Now, we may look at them and say, well, that's super high tech. Well, in a sense, they are, but in a sense, they aren't. Tamelon created the house trees to take care of the people so that they can do whatever they want to do. Tamelon are highly creative people, and being able to have someone do all the scut work for them, so to speak, frees them up to do what, do what their heart's desire is, which is to create things. They have taken a living object and modified it so that it can perform a function that would normally be done by an inanimate object. That's correct. So that would be one of the examples of classifications of super tech, right? That's correct. A house tree is more just a house. It's a fully integrated organism that does your cooking, your laundry. Though the, I doubt that very much the Tamil actually wore much in the way of clothing being covered in fur. It, it took care of all your basic needs. And it would also be self-maintaining. Mm-hmm. It would be something that could modify itself to the needs of the owner. And because the Tamelon are so creative, one house tree is not quite the same as any other house tree out there. Each one would be different because each Tamelon would be different. Broops are house tree pods. Once they get a liking to you and they decide you're their bestest bud, they're going to look for a nice plot to sit down and turn into a house tree. You better take care of them because they're yours for the rest of your life. Which will be a long time because wasn't it you, John, who said that it takes generations for a proper Tremelorn house tree to develop? Well, that was the original ones. The original ones where they actually wove trees. That took generations. Once a house tree starts going, you probably have something useful in about 10 years ready to go as long as you've taken care of it and guided it and given instructions on how to grow and so forth. Yeah, the original Tamelon house trees were actually, they sat down and wove trees. They wove branches into rooms. They wove branches into structures. And it takes a while for a tree to grow. Even a bamboo house tree would take a while to find it into, into its final shape. But the new modern house trees, you know, once a group uh, uh, sits down and plants itself, in about 10 years, you got something with about three or four rooms and a bath and a view of where it happens to be. I think that's a good example of bio-supertech. Conversely, if you had an inanimate object that had some of the characteristics of a living creature, then that could also be an example of supertech, something that would heal itself, something that had multiple configurations, a material that was flexible at at one temperature and rigid at another temperature or with the application of electromagnetics or an application of of electricity because we don't have any materials right now that can do that. We do have some magnetic fluid stuff that they're using in brakes. It's a liquid until you apply a magnetic field to it and it turns solid. They have some pretty neat super tech. They have a plastic. The atomic structure of the plastic or the the molecular structure of the plastic will not allow bacteria to grow on it. Uh, it has something to do with um, how far apart the electron shells are. Uh, when a bacteria cell tries to reproduce, it uh, basically gets stunned. So bacteria can't grow on it because the natural electric field of the, of the uh, molecule keeps it from reproducing. They have all kinds of stuff. Well, everything has to start somewhere. Um, so when we talk about a material that's super tech, it would have these qualities that you're talking about, Blaze, but it, right. it would be a mature technology so that it was reliable and, and easily applied 
and uh, available in quantities, not just something that could only be developed in a laboratory. And when we talk about self-healing, we're not talking about something that just you know, gets a minor cut on it and it seals back shut. Right. We're talking about something that's a hole blown in it and it literally grows the hole shut. And that would be the super tech version of self-healing. We don't have to limit ourselves to our current understanding of science. That's one of the great things about a game like Fringeworthy because not only are physical laws different from universe to universe, but just simply that we can say that, you know, all these things can eventually be overcome with a better understanding of the universe or the, the multiverse. One thing that really drives man, technology-wise, is his self-preservation and his longevity and his, his quality of life. I foresee that if, if you're going to have any super tech society, it's very important to think in those terms. Humans living to 200 years regularly, or maybe even curing death as if it were a disease, you know. There's no reason why we couldn't become immortal with uh, enough applied technology. You know, I'm not talking about prosthetics and stuff like that. I'm talking about just you know, regular injections of stem cells or, you know, modifying the DNA so that it wouldn't age, but then also so that it wouldn't develop cancer because that's the flip side to uh, cell death. It's like Larry Niven's booster spice, a longevity treatment. You should always think about that as a central part of a super tech society. And if it doesn't have that, you should come up with a reason why it doesn't. They may have gone a different route. They might have gone to, okay, we're not going to make people live longer. However, we'll perfect mind transfer and we'll just go from body to body to body to body. So we never have to worry about growing old because, you know, there's going to be a new crop of clones coming out that we can just hop into. Well, yeah, that, but that's a type of longevity, and that's cool. You know, I get that. Yeah, yeah. You don't have to solve all those problems about cell aging if you just get yourself a fresh body whenever you need one. Oh, sure, yeah, and that, that's a perfectly acceptable way to do it. Larry Niven had that. It turned out the only way to transfer mental information would be to take the brain and process it. So you get all the connections. Unfortunately, it means you have nothing but mush left afterwards. So it's a one-way trip. If there's any failure along the way of, of processing the brain, uh, that's pretty much it. You're dead. Some people would prefer that because some people believe that unless you have that situation where once you leave the body, the old body dies, then you're just making a clone of yourself. You're really dying in that body. You're not actually moving on to a new body. So it's a lot of philosophical questions having to do with this sort of thing of, of mind transfer or backing up your brain. Or There's also no reason to not have that in your high-tech game. And you can simply say that while it was something that was pursued at one point, um, society chose not to have it because it was, it was socially unacceptable. Or maybe some a new religion developed out of this, or maybe a current religion, just, you know, decided that it was not, you know, it did not follow the ways of uh, how God would want it. It doesn't have to be that way, and there's lots of valid reasons why it wouldn't be. James Blish wrote several of the uh, first Star Trek novels, and his version of the Transporter destroyed you. You were vaporized, and then something else was recreated over there. And, you know, I don't like the idea of being vaporized and then a new person's made over there with the same information. To me, there's no continuity then. You die, and then a clone is now built over here, and he goes off and does things, and but he's not you anymore. He's a different person. That's one of those big questions about various longevity systems. I mean, the current rage right now is uploading your brain to a computer. All right, so next we should probably talk about... Entertainment. Uh, for us, entertainment's going to 
change and change and change some more. I mean, in the 50 years I've been around, I went from four channels in black and white on TV, AM radio stations being the norm, to today, which is hundreds of channels on my cable television. I have high-speed internet, which basically lets me tap into just about anything in the world. I have devices, handheld devices that me walk around and be entertained. When it comes to entertainment, I see people becoming completely integrated with it. Imagine you could literally go into the virtual reality and you'd be interacting with people who you would feel like they were really there. You know, whenever you took a hit, like, I don't know if you've seen the movie uh, Surrogates, but that's a good example of, of one angle on that where they actually entered robot bodies. And um, Avatar is the other angle on that, where they right, actually have robots with bodies. <laughs> and then you've got the Matrix, which would be the third angle on that. Yeah, um, yeah, Matrix is more of a, of a cautionary tale than it is about an, an, a version of entertainment. Uh, <laughs> no, I'm, I'm talking about, but imagine that, using it as entertainment instead. Like, in other yeah. words, you plugged in when you want, you unplugged when you didn't want. You couldn't die in it, and it wasn't, you know, harvesting your body. But... The, the thing is, is it may not even be as crude as all that as we're talking about. People could be walking around all day long in their own kind of uh, overlay world. Imagine throwing your own skin on the whole world. So mm-hmm. some people are walking around in, in fairy tale land, and other persons walk around in a high tech world, and other persons walk around in the wild west. But they're all the same buildings. It's just they have an algorithm programmed into their visual cortex that makes them see things with that that skin on it everything around them would probably be interactive right. with them. Uh, they look at a store, if their eyes rest on an object you know, for more than a, a microsecond, then it'll say, here's the price, here's the sizes that are available, you know, here's the styles that are available, you know, do you want more? If you're doing this kind of fantasy overlay, they could appear as ogres or trolls or even everybody could be beautiful. Or everybody could be ugly, or everybody could be one color if you happen to be that kind of a person. And that's where a fringeworthy adventure could be, because if you were in a world like that, where everybody was hooked up that way, here you come prancing into the world, and you don't have any of these things. It'd be like you were somebody who was blind or deaf uh, in that world, and you might find that everybody ignores you, that nobody won't even talk to you, because from their standpoint, you have no means of communication. Either you that or, or you would stand out so poorly because you wouldn't be wearing the devices that would help register you with their overlay software yeah. that you would appear just as you are and you wouldn't have their skin laid over you and you'd stand out like a sore thumb. Or because you don't have these things, the computer software might misinterpret what you are and you might look like a pack of dogs right. because dogs can't talk. Right. Yeah. And you can't talk either, and you're moving around, and it might just choose a, an avatar that seemed appropriate to it, you know, and or maybe apes or, or chimpanzees. Right. Here's a pack of chimpanzees ambling along, you know, and doing stuff, poking at people and things. And so they're calling animal control to come get you. And if you're not careful, if, if the world is too severe, you might end up getting locked up. No one would, and no one ever would figure out until finally somebody did some kind of a bio scan where you actually had a doctor who had to actually look at an animal and see it the way it really was and suddenly go, wait a second, you, you've got no implants, you're a human, how could that be? What Does someone like lock you in a basement, one of these child abuse kind of scenarios and kept you locked down there without stuff and you just escaped? What's happened? More likely, so you're one of those Luddites who live out there in Pennsylvania. That could be too. Somehow you're 
not just Luddites, but it could be a religious reason or philosophical reason, that, which is kind of more toward the Luddites, I understand. But, you know, here's a fringeworthy adventure where you've gone to the world and your biggest problem is getting the people to even know you're there. Cars may not even stop for you because you're not radiating out a, a signal saying, hey, I'm a person, watch out for me. You haven't been burgified. Right. Yes. You're not one of the collective. You could forget about operating anything, like any kind of – you probably couldn't even open oh. doors. You'd have to follow somebody through. Yeah. You can't get dinner. Right. Yeah. You might not even be able to eat dinner. Right. Huh. Because they might have a food that's unrecognizable by your digestive system by that point. Right. On the other hand, if you are invisible, hey, you know, you just now can go on a crime spree you never thought of before. Right. That's true. <laughs> right. Because that would be a freedom that you would have. And, and that would make for a good adventure right there. I mean, you know, that would be the reason why your party would be able to do something that they couldn't do. You were talking about eating. All right, you go to this world and maybe they've developed their technology to the point that all they really need are feedstocks in order to produce their own food. So mm-hmm. you, know, you go over and says, I'd like some food. It says, okay, here you go. And they hand you something that's poisonous because it's not designed for human direct consumption, but it's designed to work well with the machine, the various high-tech devices that will turn it into a delectable dish for you to get squirted in your mouth or absorb through your skin or possibly inject it into you in some way. Conversely, you're given something that is completely and totally bland. Good old basic glucose in a base with some protein added to it because your digestive system has, has been completely replaced by an artificial system. There's no reason to actually have real food or food that doesn't have much more than just glucose and some proteins. Either that, John, or, or it's even simpler. They have an implant in the, you know, in the back of their spine or, or somewhere in their head that all they have to do is think about what they want to eat, and that's what their brain interprets what's going into their system is that's what they're eating, and that's the best meal they've ever had, which you perceive as reality. This could be one of those worlds where population is so high that that's exactly what they've had to resort to. Seaweed smashed up and, and mixed up with some essential vitamins and minerals. Oh, um, like kombu. Kombu is a... Um seaweed in Japan that basically is high in various proteins and carbohydrates and right. to, to their society that is perfectly normal that is a great idea they think this is like the, the soup best thing that's ever happened and you say well this is terrible they're like what's wrong with you there's something wrong with you there's nothing wrong with us this is just one example of what a future society could have that would be completely different from us um, but, but is well within in the realms of reality I mean especially if you have a food shortage or something like that. This is a great solution to that using high tech. Or the society is highly cyberized. That is, that person you look at, you realize everyone here looks very good. Even right. when you, even without the overlays, they look, you know, like they got, like they have like a charisma of, of eighteen. Every one of them. Well, that's because that's the body they bought. That's not real body. Uh, the only thing real in that thing is the brain. Is- or it's the body their parents bought, and it is their body. They just happen to have grown it from a template. Mm-hmm. Or in the case of a dystopia, maybe you're living in a, in a city like, uh, like an arcology, like an apple seed, where all the animals are dead. You know, the, the re- most of the rest of the world is destroyed, and this is all that's left to eat. And this was not just a, um, just something to do that was cool. This is this is truly a survival tactic. Mm-hmm. So I went green as people. Oh, uh. 
I knew we were going to go there at some point. <laughs> okay, but but super tech can transform a society and not just be a tool of the society. Mm-hmm. Just like the internet has transformed our society. These are not new concepts. Imagine if Google was built into your brain. You have your internal memory, which is part of your brain, and you have your external memory, which is, well, whatever you can tap into. It would become a society that your intelligence wasn't based on what you could remember. It was based on how well you could use knowledge, and that was solely it because you would remember very little. Anything you needed, you would just tap in and go get. Your real genius would come into who could use that information most efficiently and to its best, you know, to, to its highest uh, capacity. Understanding the connections between different pieces of information and then synthesizing it into something new. That's always been the mark of genius. It would free the person to be truly creative and inventive because he wouldn't be labored by having to memorize a whole bunch of stuff or have to look up stuff constantly. He would literally become so integrated with it, he would just, instead of like uh, having to learn how to do a formula or whatever, he'd say, I need a calculus formula that'll do this for me. Boom, done. And he would just get the answer and he could move on and he could invent and create and, and be just free flow with genius-like accuracy. He could also create instant adults. You take a clone body and you implant the knowledge of an adult, but not the personality. You wouldn't have 18, 20 years of childhood anymore. They would literally, within a period of six months to a year, be able to operate as fully functional adults. They just would only have the memories of, uh, of experiential memories of one year. Assuming, of course, you didn't want to gift those to them as well, like they did in Blade Runner. Yeah. Oh, God, that sounds awful. I certainly hope society never goes that way. The most obvious application of that is soldiers. I, I know. To me, that yeah. sounds completely perverted. Ugh. But there would be societies that could potentially do that. I just hope we never, ever become one of those. Yeah, and as we're going right now, we're, we're going to probably have robots for soldiers and uh, people. We're getting Terminators uh, instead of soldiers. John, I could see I could see surrogates is a good example. Remember the soldiers they had in that? You, know, you have absolutely fearless warriors because they know they can't die. It comes down to what is the cost of a soldier versus the cost of a surrogate. How many soldiers, infantrymen, does a battle tank actually replace? There are certain things that a battle tank can do really well, but a lot of other things that they can't. A battle tank can't go and do a, a search and elimination through a building. It can knock the building down. But, that, you know, but if you want to maintain the building, then we got to start talking about little mini tanks and other type things. And depending upon the, how difficult it is to create those things, you may end up deciding that human beings are better choices. The GM gets to decide what level of technology, because eventually, you know, you can grow battle tanks. Have nano assemblers that can photo produce, like like one of those photo printers you were telling about, uh, Blix, uh, could just literally you know run back and forth and build a tank out of a slurry you know that's made out of common household materials or even recycled garbage, and you've got a fully fledged robot, and in a few hours to a few days. Really, you guys are talking about mental enhancements. It reminds you of a series of stories that were written in Analog magazine, oh, back in the 70s. It was about the start of mental enhancement. Basically, it was represented by a pair of glasses you'd put on, and the technology in the glasses would enhance your brain. You would actually get more brains, so to speak, and smarter and, and more talented. And what happened was that someone had lent another person his glasses, and then the two people were artists. The person he lent to made some art that wasn't quite his, but wasn't quite the other person's either. It was actually a mixture of the two. 
a fellow was busy reviewing this new technology, trying to figure out how to adjudicate this case of who actually owned this new piece of artwork. He was tone deaf, completely tone deaf. He put the glasses on, he could hear music, and he could appreciate it, and he could hear the tones. He was no longer tone deaf while he was wearing those glasses. It would be like taking an aspect of someone else's brain and making it accessible to your own. This technology would probably be developed first for them to help them become normal people. And then someone would say, well, what happens if you take this technology and put it on a normal person? What happens then? But in terms of the game, this would be a way for you to make skills available to people who don't have those skills or maybe not skills at that level. In a sense, it would give like bonuses to their mm-hmm. skill roles by putting on this pair of glasses or that pair of glasses. So people might start carrying these things like Swiss Army Knife that you can plug into. Now I'm a better programmer than I was before. It could be totally advantageous or it could be a trade-off where, okay, you're, you're better at this, but because this really isn't your brain, something else is going to suffer. While you're wearing the, the device, you're absolutely perfect, or at least you have really good you know, bonuses in a skill. Take it off, none of them stick. That makes perfect sense, Sean. No matter how many times you use it, you can't make it stick. They had which, something like that in Cyberpunk called chipware sockets, where you could just slide yeah. in a skill that you need, mm-hmm. but you couldn't get any better using that. But as long as you could get a piece of software that was high enough for the things that you wanted to do, then that was fine. You know, speaking of my own characters in, in cyberspace, I would take gun skills for that reason. Because it was like, okay, most of the time I'm not going to be in combat, but when I am, pop, I'm now super good with a gun. And then afterwards I could pop that out and use my brain for other things. Now, if I was a street samurai, of course, that would be my natural skills. That's a possible application of a learning technology which so well understands your brain that it actually can confer these kinds of bonuses and even skills or memories or whatever it is that allows you to do it properly. And the world in which that happens, everybody could be a generalist, actually. You could have just a few people that were super experts and everybody else is wearing a pair of glasses. In the case of a a big catastrophe, solar radiation goes and burns out major processing centers all of a sudden, they could barely feed themselves because you know, they are, are really not good at anything. They never had to learn. Out on the French Pass, even in super tech, you're going to have different worlds with different levels of super tech. You might go from one super tech world to another and do cross-blending and cross-pollination because even a, a super tech world may not have gone in the same direction as another world. That, so they might be able to do something on a lower tech world that the upper tech world hadn't considered, had never put the, the development into. So they didn't know how to do that. They may not know robotics because they went into pure uh, brain enhancement. You're not going to have a uniform super tech. All roads don't lead to the same place, even you know, with, with, with super tech. And the Tamalin are a good example of that. Uh, they believe highly in biotech. They try to do everything with biotech, but it doesn't mean that that is the only way that could be done. We're sort of overlooking a different kind of super tech, too. I think. We're looking at super tech based on what we know about technology. But think back to the days of yore, back in the days of Flash Gordon, uh, mad scientist-style super tech. I mean, Victorians would have a different point of view what super tech would be than we would. 
uh, based on their knowledge of technology up until, of course, discovery of the fringe paths. So their version of Supertech would be various steam-powered machines and lots of electricity and, and basically lots of large, clunky stuff. In our point of view, we think more of things being miniaturized and micro. So our version of, of Supertech is radically different from what Victorian-era Supertech would be. Not necessarily, John, because with microization, we might find that steam-powered engines at a you know, nanotech level might actually be the most efficient way of doing some things. In the near future, mankind will discover something that will change him forever. An ancient portal system to millions of worlds. Built by a civilization of advanced alien beings, now lost to the ravages of an interdimensional war, he will venture forth into the fringes of space and time to find alternate Earths and alien worlds, where he will find a wondrous bounty of knowledge as to who he was and what he might become. He will also find danger at every turn as he encounters hostile societies, alien beings, and the insidious Miller. Fringeworthy, the tabletop game of interdimensional adventure is now available for a D20 system and coming soon to Savage Worlds. Action and adventure await you as you explore through the interdimensional fringes of space to an infinite number of new worlds. Your characters will face danger and excitement around every corner. Sail with Blackbeard on the Seven Seas. Journey to a steampunk Victorian age. Fight the Soviets in an 80s America that lost the Cold War. Travel to an alternate future and witness a supernova from the bridge of a starship, and then battle it out with blasters and plasma swords. Use any D20 setting you already own, or invent your own. Check out the French Woody Podcast at tritaxsystems.podbean.com to find out more. Whether you've never heard of Fringeworthy or have been playing it for the past 25 years, the Fringeworthy Podcast will entertain and inform you of all the cool stuff you can do with the most all-encompassing setting ever written. Every week, we'll take you on a tour of the fringes of space and give you tips on how to game in this fantastic multiverse. We discuss adventure ideas for the game masters and how to keep your team of characters alive for the players. Go to tritacsystems.podbean.com and take a listen. You can also find us on iTunes under keyword Fringeworthy. A million million worlds await you. Music by Ernster, available on iTunes. In my list of uh, marks of super science, one of the things I, I mentioned was really, really small things. Things that normally that you would expect to be X, but it's like smaller, could either be doing the same job or it could just be working better uh, or, or doing a, a, a tiny job in a, in a tiny location. The, the original computers were the size of rooms, and now the same amount of computing power is on a, uh, a chip that's so tiny you can't even see it. They have to put it in a block of plastic so you can manipulate it. One of the aspects of super science is something that is unbelievably smaller than you would ever expect it to be. Things that could be embedded, cameras that could be swallowed. Uh, one book I read, they literally dusted the entire world with ca video cameras that had wireless feed. So there was no place in the world where you had privacy, where no deal could be done in the, in the secret. Uh, government you know, couldn't engage in uh, acts of piracy or, or acts of cruelty and torture and not be known to its populace, or at least everybody else around because it, you know, everybody could see everything and uh, that caused of course huge social changes because that also meant there was no such thing as modesty because everybody could see you no matter you know getting dressed whatever the whole culture changed as a result of that
And that may be a world that you go to where there is no such thing as privacy. You know, they, they know what is because everyone saw you come out of it. Or not everyone, but it was recorded somewhere. And it's easy enough to find the information and backtrack to it. And they can find the exact location of the portal. You could have nanotechnology that allows you to build super powerful condensed power cells, uh, electrical power cells. So you could have those lasers. Uh, that could be made in a safe way so they wouldn't blow up. Uh, but at the same time, that wouldn't mean that necessarily people were immortal because that's not the way that they developed. That's not how where they put their technology to. You know, Ming doesn't care about people living forever. He only cares about himself living forever. If it only works in the laboratory, well, it's his laboratory, and that's just fine for him. And maybe his kids get it, too, or maybe not. All Ming's kids would be rotten. I mean, come on. They, they've got this terrible example for a father. You know that's why they needed Flash Gordon because they, and they need the Fringeworthy because the Fringeworthy act as a moral standard. That suddenly they're like, well, I don't have to be terrible to everybody around me. Maybe if I was nice to people for a change, maybe beating people until morale improves isn't a good idea. Folks, if you are looking for a, a great collection of of how we could probably do super tech in the near future, there's a is a new series a series on a Science Channel called. Sci-Fi Science. It's hosted by uh, a physicist Michio Kaku. Uh, he's like the new Sagan. Right. Uh, and it's a great little series because he goes over and he comes up with, he says, okay, I want to build a lightsaber. And he figures out how to build one using, te- using technology in the future. And he, and he did cover that one thing about the fact that, yeah, a lightsaber, you've got to heat, heat gas up to a plasma state and you've got to do it in a thing you hold in your hand. Okay, how much power does that require? Enough to run a city. But but everybody has enough power to run a city, so nobody cares. So we, there's things that are really, really small, and there's also self-repairing, adaptive, might have m- yep. multiple modes. One of the things we haven't talked about are things that are unusually tougher than you would expect them to be. Uh, Tamellarin steel, Tamellarin uh, plastic, they're all very, very t- strong, very, very tough. People who make vehicles out of it, can either make them out of very, very thin and so therefore very, very light, or they can make it normal and then you, you get hit with a howitzer shell, you can just laugh it off. It'll never penetrate the side. Strong nuclear force, the force that actually holds atoms together, is a hundred times more powerful than electrostatic force, which is what holds atoms to each other and forms molecules. So if you could therefore take atoms and hold them together using strong. Uh, nuclear forces, and I'm not saying how you would do that. I'm just saying, let's say you could do that, all right? Then you would have materials that instead of the the weak electromagnetic bonds, we have those strong nuclear bonds, and they would be a hundred times stronger, tougher than their otherwise normal counterparts. So you'd have, again, for the same thickness of wall, it would be a hundred times harder to penetrate. It might also be a hundred times heavier because that strong nuclear forces might force all the atoms to be so much closer to each other that you'd end up with a lot more atoms in a lot smaller place, but maybe not. We don't know. And in your stories in Fringeworthy, you can say, okay, you know, that's what we're going to do. We're going to say we're, these molecules are actually made up of atoms this way, and therefore I have this super strong material. Now, in the puppeteer stories, it actually turned out that there was a fatal flaw to this particular thing, and which was something that could disrupt the atoms, let's say antimatter, 
would actually cause a cascade failure in the material and literally something the size of a, of a, a ship's hull could vanish into dust when hit with enough antimatter. Poof. And we said enough antimatter, we're talking like 100 atoms. Right. Well, Not a whole lot. Right. No, it didn't matter how little. You know. And that would say that, okay, you know, that there was enough energy in those bonds between the atoms and the molecules that when they, they was disrupted, it kind of caused, as I said, a cascade failure. Just like, you know, when you hit enough atoms of uranium, it becomes uh, a fission reaction. But most of the times, if you slam high-speed electrons and neutrons into, into other piles of atoms, nothing happens. They may break apart. They may break apart into other atoms of, of other uh, atomic weights, but they don't turn into a nuclear bomb. So you could just end up with just holes in your material with, uh, and a lot of radiation because when antimatter and matter hit, they produce a lot of radiation. But it wouldn't be a cascade failure. So it's up to you how you want to apply it. I personally think that it would be it'd be a great story element to give somebody something that was really, really great, but under certain circumstances, it would fail utterly. See, here you have a, a series of books where the science is considered pretty hard, but they still have a couple of examples of this really super high-tech stuff where they hand-wave how they actually put it together. They just say they do, and it still works. And you can still do that in your Fringeworthy game. So you can have unbelievably tough materials that's gossamer thin you know, or not, and you can use this to create amazing structures, great armor or uh, something that can uh, hold inside of it a nuclear reaction and not disintegrate, some kind of containment system. Unusually tough is a mark of super science. Sure. I mean, you, you could say the society developed the ability to detect and control gravitons. Or chronons. Has the ability to detect and control, you know, the the Higgs boson particles, which, you know, give us mass. Which maybe they figured it. Right, right. Chronons. Or, particles. Right. Or, or perhaps you know they they figured out um, what makes inertia work the way it does, and they can, you know, the the idea of inertial dampeners isn't crazy talk. It's just well, it, actually, it is. In Einsteinian universe, inertia and mass cannot be separated from each other. They're the same thing. So, except, but in a Newtonian universe, in Newtonian universe, you could do that. Except, John, in in Star Trek, they can warp space. If you can warp space, then you can remove yourself from the inertial effects of it. Yeah, that's true. I mean, at that point, that's because you're I'm not saying. you're not really moving. You're just right. you're just your your piece of space is moving, but you're not moving. Maybe that's why when the ship gets hit, they all go flying. But when they're flying through space at super high speed, it doesn't affect them at all. Because they're actually not moving really fast at high speed. Right. They're just simply, you know, just sitting in place and everything else is moving around them. Right. Right. So one of the ways of, of creating super science from a GM standpoint is to go and take a concept and push it to its most ridiculous end mm -hmm. and then back off just a little bit. And then you say, oh, okay, the, this is how it works and this is what you can do with it. And then I'm going to build a whole adventure or a whole culture or a whole universe, if necessary, around that, that basic concept. And then, you know, maybe take two or three of these things, mix them together, and you have a super science culture that is totally radically different than the world in which we live in. And it isn't just a mere extrapolation of our own culture because you've introduced this new idea of how things work that can radically change everything. Let's not overlook the fact that we are allowing for Tremelin technology. So yeah. um, anything up to that is accessible as well. I mean, 
if they can smash a planet down into a platform and uh, they can create a gravity shear, then it's not too crazy to assume that some society could work itself up to at least half that level. That was also one of my marks of super science, which are apparently breaks one or more natural laws. So if you have something that has anti-gravity, it's inertialess, it's indestructible, it doesn't seem to have a power source. In other words, it's like a, a perpetual motion machine. These are all things that are marks of super science or even ultra science, if you want to call it that. It could just be a MacGuffin. You're a lot of worlds out there where people from higher tech worlds have come and dropped things. There's also worlds in which they've been utterly destroyed by the Tamelan War, Meller War, and so therefore all you have left are a few pieces. You can say, I've got this piece of technology that doesn't have any origin, if you want to. But if you do want to bring in other kinds of technology, try to extrapolate out from there. If I have inertialist power, then how does that affect the rest of the world? I mean, do you, you have people who literally walk off the top of roofs and they fall down because as soon as their feet touch the ground, it's going to trigger this inertialist thing. It's going to negate their inertia and they just keep on walking, you know, because gravity is still going to hold them down. They're inertialists, but they, they still have gravity, so they're still affected by it because they still have mass, even though it's inertialist mass. You know, I know, John, you're just you're rolling back and forth, fighting something about now. <laughs> my tongue hurts. I mean, bite my tongue so much. <laughs> hey, John, I could hear your eyes rolling. Here's a world where you could do that, you know, where people don't think even, you know, twice about driving at 150 miles an hour down a crowded street because they know as soon as they hit another car, their car's going to stop dead, you know, and move along the same way as the other cars. And buildings could be made out of relatively flimsy material because they know that if the building ever collapses, it's not going to hurt anybody because as soon as it lands on somebody's head, the building's going to stop moving. And then all, all the person has to do is stand there and wait for someone to uh, deconstruct the building around them and get them out. Anything that seems to break one or more natural laws or our understanding of how the matter and energy works would be a hallmark of super science. It's something that's beyond our understanding to the point where they've either invented new laws or you know, to, to explain these things or, you know, whatever. Because we know that when we learned about quantum mechanics, we learned that the things at the quantum level behave totally different than they do at the uh, macro level or what we would refer to as our everyday world. At, at the quantum level, uh, it is mathematically possible for all the air in a room to suddenly jump out of it, okay, and go somewhere else. Because by random chance... All the randomality could all add up, and you could be, and all the air could just go away from you. Yep. But we know that in reality, that never happens. So, you know, there, there's a difference between what can happen at the very small and what happens in, in real life in, in big places, except in places where massive energies are being operating, like in the center of black holes or in the quasars or places like that where massive amounts of energy are coming to force on a, a small area or, you know, or, or creating conditions that are almost impossible for us to conceive of. Going back to when we were talking about some of the computer systems, one of the things that we have always tried to do whenever we make an object is to make it do something very, very well. A lot of our so-called advancement in science has been toward refining what we do so that we make chemicals that work more efficiently than the coarse 
chemical reactions we had before. Uh, lenses focus better. Uh, light, uh, we, we apply only certain frequencies of light when we before applied the entire spectrum because only certain frequencies of light are important to, let's say, turning a photograph the yellow color. An object, a device, whatever you want, which is unbelievably useful to the point where it's almost like it anticipates, it reads your mind. It's that you know useful, would be a mark of super science. Let's say an object can smell the chemicals that are on your skin. It can tell that you're afraid, or it can tell that you're cold, uh, or it can read your mind by uh, picking up the electromagnetic uh, pulses that are coming off of it. Uh, or, or you can see the skin dilation or the eye dilation and therefore react to it and then react to it in a correct fashion. This would be something where, again, you would be saying that it was a, a super science type device or a super science type process. I'm trying to think of a good example of this that isn't like a robot um, because that's essentially what we're talking about is, is an object that essentially thinks. I got one for you. Imagine you have a pair of clothes that are very soft and pliable. The second that your fear instinct kicks in uh, or your adrenaline starts to surge, it becomes more rigid and turns into an armored type device. Okay, that's a good example, right. Where if you go outside and it's cold, it thickens. Yeah. And if you go where it's hot, the, the weave gets wider and lets, let, you know, lets air get into your skin. Let you perspire easier and so forth and cool naturally. Of course, in the areas in your body where you make sweat, uh, you make sticky particles, it automatically uh, applies a deodorant of some kind uh, or, or even harvests uh, those molecules for its own uses. Like a Freeman still suit. Like a still suit or uh, in the uh, Operchi hotline, they had that thing that would act like a spacesuit, suit, would go all the way around your body, and would provide food and water and everything that you needed, and it, it just wrapped around you like a second skin, and you could live in outer space. L. Neil Smith has something like that, too. And when you got to a certain age, you got your suit, and you wore it the rest of your life. So that would be a good example of something that was so reactive, so useful. It would be an example of super science. Some of the old uh, spy sagas, movies, like In Like Flint and James Bond, where you had this device that had like 150 functions. It's a pen, but it also does all these other things. It has another explosive to blow a hole through a wall. Now, I understand, no, normally you can't do that, but this pen does. Right. It has a highly reactive explosive, which you can also use to fly into space, too, if you want to do that. Most of those kinds of things, like in the wild, wild west, you know, which is really the very low end of that kind of super tech, where he literally could, you know, take things out of his pocket and assemble something that could do way beyond, like a steampunk device. He goes and, you know, pulls a little, uh, a little pull rod on it, and the thing goes and cracks open a steel door because it's, it, it has all this, this super strong spring inside of it or something like that. But yeah, something that's unbelievably useful, far more useful than, it sh than anybody could make normally. You know, that's I think that would be a good example. Like I said the clothing, excellent idea, Otto. I think that's great. Along the ideas of something really, really tough, you, let's say you have something that's about the size of a pea, and you attach it to an air compressor, and you start pumping air into it, and it inflates into something the size of a house. It could be even like opening up a, a cigarette case, and inside of it you've got all these little things there, and you just plug them in, and you create cars, and you create houses, and planes, and furniture. Like Boomer from the Dragon Ball series. Yeah, that it would have to be unbelievably tough in order to be inflated like that. And then, of course, when you're done with it, you just suck it back down to a tiny little yep. pea again, and you put it away.
You didn't need a portable hole. You didn't need uh, some kind of trans-dimensional thing because whatever you needed, you could just inflate out of some tiny little object. Right, and just just imagine tires uh, mm-hmm. that that work like the French pants do. The faster you go, the more grip they have. Mm-hmm. Right, or they could turn into balloon tires, or they could turn into uh, spike tires. I mean, uh, think of the the anime series uh, Speed Racer. That entire car is a piece of super science. Mm-hmm. Anyway, let's let's uh, anything else? Okay, so let me see here. Oh, and and of course the last thing that I had which was something, and we, we mentioned it just in passing, but something that's really, really big. The big domes that you see in science fiction paintings over an entire city. That's an example of super science. And I've seen that done a couple of ways. Sometimes it's an energy dome, but I actually read a story one time where that was actually a plastic tent that was held up by positive air pressure. So it was really, really thin, and because of that, you could air condition an entire city. And it was actually done automatically because it pulled air down from the upper atmosphere where it was really cold down into the city and then blew it out. But it also could be a force field. Larry Niven once said he wished he had never introduced stasis fields to his known space uh, universe because some smart person could come up with a way to make a, a warship with a stasis field as its armor. Stasis field is stop time space, and theoretically, it's completely impervious. As long as whoever generates the stasis fields can can operate, you can't get through it. It's impossible. The theory is, if you make it into a hull, all you need is one opening in it to make a shell, like a vacuum bottle. Now you have a hull that nothing can penetrate. That's a lot of different ways of uh, in examples of super science. I, I think we've probably given our listeners some good ideas. Some source material, though, I, I do highly recommend you pick up the late Dr. Forward's uh, book, Indistinguishable from Magic. Using what we know about modern day physics and then extrapolates it forward, he comes up with lots of, well, super science things. That's great. We'll put them in our show notes. One more thing to consider transferring super science from one world to another. We should address that for just a second here. Um, Mm-hmm. Anything that has super science can be made of material that IDEC can't reproduce. It can be that simple. Um, yeah. Yeah, they, they could look at it and they could say, um, yeah, there's some kind of key component in here, some kind of film over top of some kind of crystal, and um, we may be able to duplicate the crystal, but we, we, have, we don't even know what this film is. And yeah. all attempts to even register what it is have, have failed. You know, So there's that. Or they could even say, hey, it's transparent aluminum. That's really cool, and we have no idea how to recreate that. Yep. And so, and that might even be why they would let you have it, because they may surmise, well, there's nothing we can do with this. I mean, it, it's, it's cool and all, and if we could figure it out, right. that would be great. But we can't even begin to understand the science on this. They might even say, we could recreate this if we had the power of a sun to fuel it. So um, you can just have it because we can't do anything with it. Or it comes from a universe that has different physical laws, and it works great in that universe. You bring it anyplace else, it either blows up, breaks down, or something else happens to it, and you can't use it. Right, right. But I'm just thinking things like, for example, you bring a lightsaber back to IDET. They look at it and everything, and they're like, well, this is this is great and all, and, and if we could duplicate any of it, we might want to keep it. But, you know, the scientists are sitting there scratching their heads like, I don't even know where to begin to look at this thing. It's the crystals, you know, because the lightsabers use these special crystals. Right, right. right. Well, I'm saying 
Yeah. <laughs> they're, they're looking at it and they're like, I don't even know what to do with this. I, I wouldn't even know what machine to hook it up to. <laughs> yeah. And, and that is one of the prime ways we have of giving mm -hmm. your characters these kinds of objects. Is simply IDET saying, you know, we can't reproduce this, so why don't you use it and maybe, you know, find a primer somewhere or an intermediate device. It isn't quite so good that we might have a chance of, of discerning or reproducing. Right. The, the idea being that if they give you that device, you'll be able to do your job better and maybe bring back something that they can use. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yeah. Or it may turn out that lightsabers, only reason why lightsabers work in the Star Wars universe is because they run off of force power right. and not off of anything else. And, oh, well, yeah, they're fun when you're, when you're in a Star Wars universe. But otherwise, they're no good. Right. That's always a possibility too. Yeah. Yeah. It, instead, it's not it's not high tech. It's weird science. Yeah, or odd or alternate science. Right. Yeah, but still, alternate science can still be high tech. The Victorian universe is not the same as our universe. So, Victorian Earth actually is a place where alternate physics will will apply. They have cavorite. We we don't. All right then. Well, sounds like a wrap up. Okay. Just to reiterate what we've talked about on the show, the marks of super science are, one, unusually tough, two, adaptive, it may have multiple modes like pliable or stiff, three, self-repairing, four, self-aware or actively seeking to fulfill its purpose, five, organic, when normally it's inorganic, at least in your mind, six, or inorganic, when normally it's organic. Seven, apparently breaks one or more natural laws. Really, really big. Really, really small. Or unbelievably useful to the point of prescience. There's a lot of other definitions we could give, but these are the ones that I thought of. And if you can think of some other ideas, some better ideas of, of introducing super science and some examples, please come to our boards and our forums at tritechgamers.com or even leave comments on our website at tritechsystems.podbean.com because we'd like to hear more about how you use super science and some of the things that can be done to really make your adventures exciting. Please use these ideas to make your adventures exciting because <laughs> we want everyone to realize how cool Fringeworthy is and your adventures that you write are our best advertisements. So go out there and be awesome. But until next week, this is Bruce Sheffer saying there are a million, million worlds out there. So go explore them. This is John Ryer saying keep your powder dry and keep those cards and letters coming in. And this is Blix. Remember, bullets speak louder than words. Creative Commons License 3.0. No commercial distribution or derivatives are allowed. The TriTech Podcast is wholly owned by TriTech Games. Visit us at www.tritechgamers.com or on Facebook.
Hi, this is Trav of the Travcast, Hour 3 of Blind Wolf's Rubber Room Association on DementiaRadio.org, Tuesdays, 8 to 9 p.m. Eastern.